0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll present people from two think tanks in Ohio that have very different takes on Ohio's new two-year state budget that was signed into law by Governor Mike DeWine a couple of months ago. I'll talk with Ray Hederman from the Buckeye Institute and Hannah Halbert from Policy Matters Ohio, specifically about the taxes taxes. And education aspects of the budget. And also this hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend talks with a new superintendent of Columbus City Schools, takes a look at the teacher shortage, and a district that is arming staff members to provide an extra layer of security. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, we've talked to him before. It's Ray Hederman, who's the executive director of the Economic Research Center and vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. How are you? I'm
1: doing fine, Dave. Thanks for having me
0: back. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Buckeye Institute is. Yes, the Buckeye
1: Institute is a nonpartisan research institution, a think tank, if you will, located in Columbus, Ohio. And what we do is we analyze policies in in Ohio and other states uh, aimed at making Ohio more prosperous, looking at ways that the free market can help people live better lives.
0: Okay, and we were going to talk a little bit about the state budget signed into law by the governor, two year budget. uh, What are your overall thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, well, you know, Ohio came into this budget cycle with a real opportunity to do big things. Uh, We ended the fiscal year, you know, which, as your listeners probably know, ends uh, uh, June 30th with a record budget surplus. And when you have a record budget surplus, politicians can do two things. One is they can create a whole bunch of new spending programs, or two is they can make sure people can keep more of their money. And, you know, we're glad to say that this tax uh, uh, cut that was enshrined in the budget was large and helped all Ohioans. But perhaps more importantly than that, Dave, is that Ohio created an education system uh, giving everybody access to vouchers so families can choose what's the best education options for their children. Uh, You know, we've seen a lot of uh, learning loss from the pandemic, but moving to an education voucher system really can make up the difference. And we've seen a lot of other states doing it, and we're glad to see Ohio join the revolution of giving families vouchers so they can have a choice on where their children are educated.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about that school choice, uh, the voucher program, in a couple of minutes. First, let's start with that state income tax cut, because I've always found this really interesting, because I've done a number of interviews with you and others at Buckeye Institute, and also with the folks at Policy Matters Ohio, and the, the two groups could not be more different on the stance when it comes to the state income tax cut. Policy Matters Ohio says it's overwhelmingly for the, for the wealthiest in Ohio, and benefits Low-income Ohioans, not a bit, they, because they already don't pay state income tax. They look at it as giving billions of dollars back that could be better used by the government to increase Ohio's job opportunities, etc.,
1: Yeah, you know, and I think that turns down to a difference in philosophy. And the simple matter is that, you know, when people are able to work and invest and you incentivize uh, people to do so, you see stronger economic results. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of comparisons about the economic philosophies of government-led spending programs leading to prosperity, and that doesn't work. You know, we can look at the fact that, you know, Europe, for example, is a perfect example of higher taxes uh, in government spending trying to produce prosperity and as a result, we've seen that Europeans are falling farther and farther behind America in terms of people being better off. People here in America are able to buy nicer houses, more amenities to go with those houses. Because, and Dave, the key is people have incentive to work more, to be able to invest more, to create more jobs, to create new opportunities. And that's what this tax cut bill does. Uh, basically, it says we're reducing the number of tax rates, we're moving Ohio toward. a uh, Flat tax. And so, as a consequence, when people are paying income tax in the state of Ohio, next year they'll be able to keep more of their own money. They'll be able to sit there and say, How do I want to invest my money? Do I want to create a new business opportunity? Do I want to work more hours? And we think that's a a better solution to prosperity as compared to government directed uh, economic
0: spending. Well, and one thing on that line of thinking is what you said earlier with the state's revenue continuing to increase and being strong. And if those tax cuts had not been made over the last 20 years, that would have opened the door perhaps for runaway spending when it wasn't necessary.
1: Absolutely, you know, and that, and that has always been our big concern. That you know, when there's a huge surplus in uh, federal government or state capitals, you know, uh, unfortunately, there's a strong incentive to spend it. And you know, research has found, academic research has found, uh, of multiple studies that you know, government spending does not pay for itself. You know, because politicians' priorities on uh, what they might spend a program on uh, tend to be things that politicians want to use to get elected, something that's in their interest. And so, as a consequence. Government dollars are not spent as efficiently has people being able to make decisions on how they're going to spend their tax dollars. So, you know, if you think about it, when Ohio had this record budget surplus, being able to make sure that Ohio families and businesses can keep more of their money uh, is a job well done. And that's an important change that both the House and Senate put into the budget process, as Governor DeWine's initial proposal only had a very small tax cut, uh, mostly aimed at uh, fa- uh, family spending.
0: What would be the one uh, aspect of the budget that perhaps bothers you more than anything else?
1: You know, on the tax uh, cut side, Dave, you know, uh, basically pre before the budget, Ohio's tax brackets were what we called indexed to inflation. That meant as inflation goes up, The starting point of a tax bracket goes up as well. And that's important because we don't want Ohioans to pay more taxes simply due to inflation. And, you know, one of the proposals uh, that was put in is that they were going to uh, basically freeze the tax bracket so brackets would not go up every year with inflation and then have those automatically adjusted. Um, That did not make it into the budget process. And as a consequence, tax brackets remain the same uh, as they were in this previous years, which puts future Ohioans, you know, in danger of simply paying more taxes due to uh, inflationary pressures uh, from runaway spending in Washington, D.C. So I'm hopeful that the General Assembly will come back and uh, make sure that the tax brackets are indexed uh, to protect taxpayers from inflation.
0: Talking with Ray Hederman, he is the vice president of policy at the Buckeye Institute. School vouchers or school choice. This was interesting because the governor, in addition to uh, allowing the expansion of school choice or vouchers, also increased funding for public education.
1: Yeah, you know, when you, ha- when you have a record budget surplus, you know, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for politicians to do big things. And, you know, in this case, we've seen uh, a a massive amount going to traditional public school funding, K-12, through as part of the governor's proposal. And we've also seen, you know, the creation of this new universal school voucher program uh, put in as well. So, you know, politicians are able to have their cake and eat it, too, uh, because of the robust budget surplus. And I think it's important, you know, to, to, to again to look at the fact that, you know, test scores have plummeted. And so what a universal voucher does, again, is it gives families families uh, a a certain amount that they can use for tuition uh, if they choose to invest in a a private school, for example. But we're also making good on promises, you know, to continue to fund K-12 programs in a traditional manner, uh, and that saw a strong spending increase as well. So, you know, education was definitely one of the big winners of this recent budget cycle.
0: Uh, The choices that parents have for their kids today when it comes to a non-traditional school There's been a lot of scrutiny over the years by some groups who say that, you know, some of these are for-profit schools that are not doing the job they should be doing, don't have the accountability they should. Has that been improved over the years or what is the status on that?
1: Well, you know, one of the things I I think, you know, one of the things that will be useful to see is that, you know, parents will have incentive, you know, to sit there and say, is my kid getting their education? Um, And I think a lot of parent involvement is going to be key. The other thing I think in this budget, uh, Dave, is that uh, the governor is going to have a lot more authority over the administration of education uh, because the state school board's powers were weakened. And instead, those powers are transferred to the executive branch. And what this means is there's going to be a lot more accountability uh, for Governor DeWine to make sure that oversight of schools goes well, that these new programs, these new vouchers are administered well to make sure you know that families are easily able to have access to them, that people are able to spend it on the right schools, uh, school accreditation continues. So, you know, that is a change in the budget that doesn't have a lot of, you know, financial dollars attached to it. But by giving the executive branch stronger oversight on how school choice is executed, that could pay a lot of dividends for school reform.
0: And that's something that if you go back before that, was it Voinovich maybe who uh, during his administration, the change was made so that some of the school board members were appointed by the governor instead of elected?
1: Yes, you know, I mean, this is not a, a, a brand new idea. And what we found, you know, is that the school board uh, had some accountability to the voters, but that was a little bit more diffused and so they were not as effective in executing some of these reform proposals that we've seen over the last couple of years. And, you know, so there's some frustration where the governor could appoint a few officials, but, you know, he didn't have a lot of control over how some of these programs were administered. And so, you know, we saw the first proposals last year to kind of tighten this up. Uh, and now it was finally enshrined into law. So, you know, Governor DeWine staff um, and Governor DeWine are going to have a lot more responsibility in making sure these new education reforms are administered effectively and then looking at the results where we uh, hopefully we'll see Ohio students uh, with higher test scores uh, and, and have more opportunities as they uh, graduate from uh, high school.
0: Is there any risk with that, though? I mean, if you get a governor who has some, some really, uh, you know, unusual, let's say, ideas about education. Does that give him too much power in the future if that happens? You
1: know, that, you know that's, uh, that was a concern that some opponents have, you know, but it's always the question of, you know, you have the same risk by some of the school board uh, members, you know, being elected with different priorities and uh, perhaps what some people have, you know, but I think the key is, you know, you want a clear line of responsibility. So those that, you know, are administering the program uh, bear the responsibilities and voters know who's at fault. And in this case, you know, the governor is given a little bit more power, uh, but the consequence, he's going to need to be able to answer to officials and voters to make sure that he's carrying out the education reforms correctly.
0: One of the uh, areas of education reform where the governor seems to be trying to lead on is this third grade reading guarantee and, and trying to change the state's approach to teaching third graders how to read.
1: Yes. You know, and so that's one of those things that uh, we're seeing a a lot of states looking at this right now. And the idea is if a third grader uh, uh, isn't able to read, you know, they will need to repeat third grade. And so the idea is that we need to guarantee literacy since that is such a foundational element of being able to be successful in life. And, you know, many other states have been looking at this, enacting some of these uh, reading guarantees uh, and partially as a result of COVID. And, you know, we've seen uh, good results uh, because what it does is it aligns all the incentives of school teachers, parents who want to look out for their kids, you know, local public school officials and the child themselves to make sure that, you know, reading remains of paramount importance. And so, you know, we've been strongly supportive uh, of that provision.
0: It's interesting because the governor, I remember hearing a few weeks ago say, He wants to get back to some sort of a a phonics-based sort of uh, reading lesson, and he's pointing to, I believe it was Mississippi. Uh, or one of those states down there. It it
1: was Mississippi, Dave, yes. You know, so one of the uh, less well-off states in the nation uh, that they had uh, uh, results coming in as a result of their third-grade reading guarantee. And people were very surprised to see the spike in literacy rates in the state of Mississippi. And so, you know, that's been profiled in newspapers ranging from, you know, the New York Times uh, to other more conservative groups and publications, you know, basically saying, look, you know, there's something here, and we need to make sure that a lot of students these days can read. And, you know, taking a look at the governor's phonics approach, you know, that is the best uh, proven way to have people be able to read English. And so the, the, I'm glad to see policymakers focus on the key issue of making sure that elementary school uh, children uh, do have the skills they need to succeed later in school and, of course, in their careers. And I think you know one of the things that the governor's budget has done is continue to prioritize you know the well-being of children, Uh, you know not just with some of the education things that we've talked about, you know, and the vouchers, Uh, you know, they also uh, looked at uh, some controls on social media, for example, uh, that you'd want uh, uh, you know some parental consent, Um, and so you know there's a lot of uh, focus on making sure that Ohio's uh, children can get a good education and you know are. Protected uh, uh, as well as they can be uh, through uh, measures in this
0: budget. Interesting stuff. Uh, Ray Hederman again with the Buckeye Institute. Ray, if folks want to see your research online and uh, policy positions and all that, how do they find it?
1: Yeah, you should go to buckeyeinstitute.org. It has all our information on the budget and testimonies, editorials, uh, our our research papers. Uh, So we invite people to come check us out. You know, we are a think tank that focuses on fiscal policy, health care. And, of course, you know, legal issues as well.
0: Always good to talk to you, Ray. Thanks so much for your time today.
1: Very much appreciated, Dave. Appreciate the opportunity. Up next,
0: someone from a think tank that has a very different take on the state budget.
2: Lexi spent more than six years in foster care. Before
3: I was adopted, I felt
2: alone. With help from the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, Lexi now has a forever family and the foundation for a bright future.
3: Adoption changed me for the better. I feel like I can be whoever I want to be.
2: You can help find permanent homes for children still lingering in foster care. Learn more at DaveThomasFoundation.org. Need money for after-school
4: and educational programs for your child? Qualifying families can receive $1,000 per child through Ohio's after-school child enrichment accounts. Funds received by a parent or guardian can be used on a number of educational activities, including tutoring, day camps and field trips, language and music lessons, and much more. You can find the full list of how funds can be spent and begin the process of receiving your educational account. Find out if your family qualifies by visiting aceohio.org
5: today. Sponsored by the Ohio Department of Education, aired by OAB and this station
0: this is columbus perspective on the fan hi this is dave james and on the phone with me is hannah halbert who is the executive director of policy matters ohio how are you
4: I am pretty good. How are you doing?
0: Good. Thanks for talking to us. What is Policy Matters Ohio?
4: So Policy Matters is a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, research institution in uh, Cleveland and Columbus. Uh, We focus on statewide policy that's going to help all Ohioans, uh, no exceptions.
0: Okay. And the state budget is out, the two-year budget, 6,000 pages long, and it's... It's been uh, signed by the governor, and uh, you've got some interesting takes on it, some things in there that don't sit well with you.
4: Oh, sure. Well, you know, it's a big policy document. I mean, this is really, it's it's certainly going to set the tone for the next couple of years, but it really sets a course for Ohio over the long term. And um, there are some... Structural changes to Ohio's tax system that I think are really going to move us in the wrong direction over time. Well,
0: it's interesting because one of the things that you talk about is this uh, continual cut in the state income taxes, which I think started under Governor Taft a long time ago, and Policy Matters has always been against that, right?
4: Well, we've been ta- tracking uh, income tax cuts for a few decades now. Uh, since, let's see, 2005, uh, not including what just happened, we've lost about $8 billion, with a B a year in tax cuts. So that's revenue that otherwise could have been used for schools or um, higher education costs, like lots of things that really help uh, a, a majority of Ohioans, you know, have some economic security or build on um, their economic security to have some economic mobility. And taking that amount of money out of the system, and we're adding another billion per year with the latest round of tax cuts, really does limit what we can do as a state to build that broad base of security, of economic security.
0: You know, a lot of times politicians from either side of the aisle, when they talk about tax cuts, will talk about how it helps the low income, and yet, in this case, with a state income tax, if you make less than $23,000 a year, you're not going to get a penny out of it.
4: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the income tax is the only tax in Ohio that is based on your ability to pay. And so if you are in the top 1%, uh, you're going to be paying a, a little bit more as someone in the lower you know, 20%. Uh, Or that's how it's supposed to be. It's based on how you uh, have benefited from all the stuff going on in the state. If you're making good money, you know, you can contribute. Um, And so what happens when we cut those taxes and really move toward a more flat tax rate? is that we're no longer uh, taxing people based on their ability to pay and treating everyone the same. Now, that has really uh, unequitable or inequitable results. So in this tax cut, the the changes that were made in this budget, a lot of people are calling it a middle-class tax cut. But when we did the math, we found that this proposal – that caused some changes in how the state does inflation adjustment adjustment, is likely to have a tax increase on the middle income Ohioans, those in the working class, and those at the bottom, right? So it really is backwards as to what you would expect if it really is
5: a, a tax
0: cut for all that tax uh, difference for the middle class, even in years when there's been some sort of a tax benefit, it's that's been minimal as well. I mean, there just hasn't been, you know, we've been hearing about state income tax cuts is, as you said, for nearly 20 years. And yet over the course of that time, a middle income Ohioan, I'll bet you all of it hasn't even added up to more than a couple hundred dollars.
4: You know, Right, is that uh, those and the sixty <laughs> percent of Ohioans, the vast majority of us, don't see a whole lot of benefit from this kind of tax cut. Um, however, those in the top twenty percent see significant benefit. This this uh, the the bill that just passed uh, the richest Ohioans. So people earning over six hundred and twenty-one thousand dollars a year. Uh, their average income in that group is like 1.5 million, so they're doing okay. Uh, that group, on average, will see a tax reduction of more than four thousand dollars a year. While those middle-class Ohioans, so those are people average income is like sixty-one thousand, they're going to see a slight increase. They'll be on average paying like fifteen bucks more. Now. Once that inflation uh, change uh, goes away, so that's supposed to be temporary, then it'll look like what we have seen in the past couple of budgets where middle-class Ohioans see very little benefit from this, this tax cut. But they sure are going to feel it whenever they're having to pay college tuition checks <laughs> for their children, uh, when their public schools don't have um, the recreation and after-school activities, and they're paying fees on sports uh, when we can't get good teachers in the classroom or support teachers having longer careers because we can't get funding in the door. You know, that's how we pay for these tax cuts. It's really taking away from those institutions, either through cuts or just chronic underfunding, um, so we can make sure that those who are doing well can do a little bit better. And that that just seems backwards <laughs> to how um, Ohio uh, should be run.
0: Talking with Hannah Halbert, she's the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. Well, if it seems to be bad public policy in that sense, why is it so popular? I mean, does it? if a company like Intel is coming to Ohio, do they look at some of these numbers, like bottom-line figures of a state income tax and... Are there parameters that make Ohio look more attractive when things like this are done to outsiders?
4: So Ohio is already, in terms of both state and local taxes, we're already uh, below average. Already, before these changes were happened, we're already a lower tax state. Funny you mention Intel because we are sending billions in, in through tax incentives, tax abatements, uh, infrastructure. A building to bring intel here. And those packages are often offered up as requirements to bring out-of-state companies to the state of Ohio. What we've seen is that often companies are just pitting states against each other <laughs> to get their best deal possible. And what we really should be thinking of in terms of public policy is how do we support the growth, expansion, and creation of businesses right here in the state of Ohio. So we don't have to get into this sort of um, race to the bottom competition. Uh, this kind of income tax cut, I, I doubt it is a blip on the radar for a company like Intel. But if Intel can't get a workforce that is has the education they need, that can uh, – get to uh, where they need to go for work, uh, they're going to really feel that, and that would be a critical factor. Uh, And that all depends on our state being able to fund things like schools, post-secondary education, infrastructure, roads, uh, and that takes revenue. And so what we proposed in our response to this budget is like, The path we should take should put the working people first, put the majority of Ohioans first instead of big
0: business. Well, some of the things in the budget, education-related, they're capping the inflation on tuition at 3% rather than cost of living, and they're also providing scholarships for top students in high school. Are there elements of of that or other elements of the budget that you do like?
4: You know, uh, one really significant positive in the budget is what's going on with K through 12 uh, funding for public schools. So Ohio has had a longstanding problem with having uh, inequitable school funding. So schools, if you were in a high property tax uh, generating area, you'd have a lot of money for your schools. If you were in a low uh, property tax area, you wouldn't have so much money. So kids were sh- receiving very different experiences in school, and that's actually contrary to Ohio's constitution. So uh, finally, in the last budget, Ohio came up with a plan, it was bipartisan, to solve that problem. It created a new formula, based it on the actual cost of educating kids, and put some money behind it and uh, this budget uh, continues on that path and that's a very good thing for Ohio kids they improved some of the cost estimates Um, they gave a small (laughs) a small increase for uh, the base cost for teachers so in Ohio the starting for teachers could be as low as thirty thousand dollars a year and they moved that up to thirty five thousand so so that is a really positive step from this budget, and I'm, I'm glad they retained that. Uh, there's some uh, money to make more school, more kids eligible for free lunch, which is helpful. Uh, Medicaid will be extended, basically continuous coverage for kids up through age three so that they can, you know, don't, they have continuous care if they have continuous coverage. So there are some positives. Uh, It's not all bleak, but the positives that we're seeing compared to these really deep long term sort of structural changes and how Ohio uh, takes in revenue, uh, it, it doesn't quite, it's just not enough.
0: Hannah Halbert, she's the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. I did want to ask, the Ohio Department of Education is becoming the Ohio Department of Education and Workforce with a a cabinet-level position, which means that the state school's superintendent's powers are kind of stripped, as is the school board, uh, putting more of that into the governor's office. What is your take on that?
4: Yeah, you know, this has been uh, kind of a political football, and that change... uh, Take over of the school board has been a piece of legislation that's not been able to pass. Like, it's not been able to make it over the line because it's been so controversial. Um, so, it got dropped into the budget and it finally, you know, it made it through. The concern with that is that we are now going to further politicize a piece of education. And the way that education has been going over the last a year or so—it's uh, already too much, too much of that partisanship, kind of ideological um, stuff leaking into the schools anyway. And so, you know, this seems like a, a, a very—you know—a way to really limit what is possible in the independence of the, the board. There's always a desire for more local control, uh, focus on the school districts, having community engagement, and to see this sort of shift into more about politics, more about partisanship, um, just things just unneeded, if not uh, damaging over the long term.
0: School choice has greatly expanded, but at the same time, so was funding for public schools. So, you know, I think a lot of people think, if I'm not confident in the school that my child is going to, why can't I have a choice to take them somewhere else more easily?
4: So the, the voucher program, I think it's talked about as, as school choice or funding school choice. Um, what's actually happening in the voucher program is that getting a voucher were already enrolled in private school, so it's not like they're sort of jumping ship from their public school and going to the private school and the voucher was the thing that made the difference. They're already there. Uh, this budget is sending about $2 billion, which be, to private schools through the voucher program, and again, largely funding kids that were already going. Um, And that means there's $2 billion less in the sort of shared uh, bank account of the state to go to other things, like fully implementing the Fair School Funding Program. We're only, uh, I think, two thirds through with that. Um, Or doing wellness programs, uh, behavioral and mental health services, all kinds of things that that we could do to uh, benefit more Ohioans uh, than funding this voucher program. Now, public schools are educating about 90% of Ohioans kids. And so we're willing to spend $2 billion, which I believe will be, um, we've not finished the analysis on it, but that's going to be quite a hefty bit of a chunk of change compared to what the increases in terms of schools to institutions that are only educating a small minority Of kids who are already most of them already there and at schools that do not have to accept all kids and so the choice is largely up to the private school and who and who who comes in their door to be educated um at their place so it is one thing to talk about this kind of voucher program if Ohio's public schools had all that they needed. Quite another, whenever schools and there were young people out of the state house frequently, frequently this session talking about some of the conditions and needs of their schools. So, um, two billion dollars. Uh, Incomes up to 450 percent of poverty, so 135,000 for a family of four, will get the, the full voucher. Uh, those over that amount will get something. They'll get a check. There's going to be a sliding scale uh, for higher income. So, this is going to, some of that billion, you know, some of those billions are definitely going to families that already have their kids enrolled have never thought about sending their kids to a public school and who have no problem footing the bill. And that just doesn't make sense for, you know, at a time where kids are are struggling. We have these third grade reading requirements that we're really struggling with. Kids are really struggling. It just doesn't make sense that that's a good use of the money.
0: Talking with Hannah Helbert. She's the executive director of Policy Matters Ohio. Hannah, if people want to see uh, some of these uh, studies and research that you do, how do they find that online?
4: We are at policymattersoho.org.
0: Great. Thanks so much for your time and the information today. I sure appreciate it.
6: Oh, happy to talk. Happy to talk. Thanks so much.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan.
6: I'm Tracy Townsend. This week on Face the State, we're headed back to school. The challenges facing school districts this fall and the new faces taking them on.
2: My son um, is um, a student in CCS, and so sometimes I'm wearing the hat of the superintendent, but all the time I'm wearing the hat of a public school parent.
6: My interview with the new Columbus City Schools Superintendent, Dr. Angela Chapman. Her plans for the state's largest school district and what she says about the district readiness for the start of class.
7: Our school can't afford a school resource officer like, like other schools could. So for us, the only thing we could do was to arm staff.
6: Districts arming themselves for the start of school, the money going to schools for protection, and why not everyone is included. And back in the conversation, the renewed redistricting debate. Why issue one, even though it's dead in the water, is playing a role in where and who you will vote for.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130
6: on 10TV. Good morning, everyone. This morning, we are taking a look at some of the changes and debates happening about the school systems in the Buckeye State. For the state's largest school district, students and teachers returned to class with a new yet familiar leader, Dr. Angela Chapman. First this morning, I sat down with the superintendent to talk about some of the major issues facing the Columbus City Schools District and students. Columbus City School Superintendent Angela Chapman wants to make it clear that she understands what district parents want for their children as an educator and as a mom my son
2: is a student in ccs and so sometimes i'm wearing the hat of the superintendent but all the time i'm wearing the hat of a public school parent
6: the dual role she says helps her understand the assignment of guiding the state's largest school district through a significant leadership transition we want to be the city of
2: choice we also want to be the district of choice
6: and ensuring staff, students, and the community of stability at the helm. We know the
2: magic happens in the classroom, and my number one goal was to protect the energy and the space in the classrooms and our schools.
6: Chapman officially became superintendent July 1st. The best is yet to come. <laughs> <laughs> After serving as interim, it's been a whirlwind from meeting with administrators to kicking off the new school year at Woodcrest Elementary. <laughs> which has the year-round school program, and this month rallying more than a 1,000 teachers at the Summer Professional Development Institute at the Columbus Convention Center. What do you think makes a good teacher? Because we know your roots are in the classroom.
2: Absolutely. So I really think there's an art to teaching, right? Um, Number one, we want all of our educators to really be passionate about the work that they are leading. We want them to see our students as their student.
6: In addition to passion. Superintendent Chapman says highly skilled educators can execute the critical mission of teaching, especially literacy. All CCS teachers are trained to teach the science of reading curriculum, which is based on 30 years of research, starting kids in kindergarten with the foundation of learning the alphabet and the sounds the letters make and how to blend those sounds into words. No
2: matter what word they come across, they will be able to uh, sound it out. They will have um, Um, strategies in their toolbox, whether they're using um, their hands to sound out the words
6: cat, (laughs) blending it together. Does that speak to the the need to kind of adhere to that third grade reading guarantee?
2: Absolutely, and so we know that we want our students to be on track for um, literacy in third grade, not because of the third grade reading guarantee, but because that's a moral imperative.
6: Classroom teachers are also key to the imperative of reading. The need is high, but the candidate pool is low. I asked Superintendent Chapman about whether CCS has enough teachers. Our recruitment efforts are still
2: underway. We're still recruiting in addition to the new educators that we have recruited. We also have um, daily subs as well as building subs. I think we have about 200 um, building subs and maybe 300 um, day subs that are will be available to help us cover for vacancies as they arise during the school year.
6: Superintendent Chapman believes the first day can be an indicator of what's ahead.
2: And all of the planning that we've been doing related to food service, transportation, curricular materials, Um, hiring
6: teachers, hiring bus drivers, hiring IAs, that's when it all comes together. Columbus City Schools, not the only district with a new superintendent at the helm. Several school districts have new superintendents this year, including Westerville, Hilliard, and Olentangy local schools. Those superintendents will have to work harder to attract new teachers. Ohio, according to a research group, has the sixth highest teacher shortage in the country. When you narrow that into Ohio's regions, the worst include the Southwest, Southeast, and West because of the difficulties of recruiting for rural parts of our state. There's also really just changes in attitudes toward the profession.
3: The health of the teaching profession is at or near its lowest point in the past 50 years. Many more teachers are saying that if they could do it all again, they would not become teachers. Many more teachers are saying that the stress of the job is not worth it.
6: Ohio has also seen a gradual decline of newly licensed teachers over the last decade, though according to the Fordham Institute, found that recently more teachers are staying on the job year to year. Kiona has found one way Central Ohio is recruiting and training teachers.
8: Yeah, before credentials, Ohio teachers need at least 12 weeks of student teaching. The lack of pay for this work is just one thing getting in the way for people who want to teach. On the path to becoming a teacher, you'll find roadblocks.
6: There's financial barriers, there's, uh, you know, time barriers. And when you get the
8: job... It's not an attractive job right now. Teaching doesn't, not a lot of people want to do it anymore. Um, and, it, and it's also a costly educational kind of degree when the income that you get as a teacher isn't always the greatest. It's part of the reason we're seeing a national teacher shortage. I mean, it's been a huge issue already forever, but I think we're seeing it become an even bigger issue, especially after COVID. And it's why Nisreen Dowd and our team created the Capital City Teacher Residency Program. And it's a two-ish year program, obviously, depending on what individual come in with um, coursework-wise, and it gives them a chance to get their license or complete their degree while also maintaining some sort of income in the Columbus City School District. Dowd is working with Associate Professor Bradley Conrad.
6: He says the goal is bigger than getting teachers in the door. That has been done, that, but but it's it's about keeping them in there, because if you, if you don't, you're just putting a Band-Aid on a gash, right?
8: The program aims you to fix the right problem now. for people like Thaddeus Anderson, be, who says there are yeah, barriers making family. it hard to move up.
9: You know, it's hard to stop with your daily life to continue
8: forward with education. He now gets to keep his job as an intervention specialist for CCS while taking online classes to get a license to teach, hoping to inspire his students along the way. Maybe they want to be successful as well.
6: Kiana Deitches, 10TV News. Also this school year, Governor Mike DeWine wants to make teaching a registered apprenticeship program. This will allow schools to train new teachers who may already be working at a school. So think bus drivers, aides, or librarians. DeWine also made a major investment in schools when he signed this year's state budget. District leaders will have more than a billion dollars to spend in the coming years. Several districts are also getting funding for upgrading school safety. However, some children will go to class this year and be protected by an armed teacher. Several dozen schools chose to arm their teachers after the governor signed House Bill 99 at the end of last year's legislative session. It's still a highly debated topic across the state. This morning, we looked through the state documents and found 41 schools... This year have requested the training for teachers and staff to go through before they are allowed to have guns in schools. Many are in our rural communities. 10 Kevin Landers looks into the debate.
10: Joshua Lynn is not your typical school administrator because of the weapon attached to his hip. He says he's prepared to use it if someone enters his school with a gun.
7: I am fully prepared physically and mentally if someone comes in there with a gun and it's pointed out. Uh, DEFINITELY. 100% hundred percent
10: Lynn works at Licking County Christian Academy with a student population of 60 our
7: school can't afford a school resource officer like like other schools could so for us the only thing we could do was to arm staff he says the March shooting at a Christian school in Nashville sparked the conversation to arm staff here the, the shooting in Nashville the Covenant school shooting there's a lot of parallels with that school
10: and our school being a small Christian school in the Nashville shooting a former student killed three nine year old children and three adults before he was shot and killed by police. Right. Lynn says he and other staff went through three days of training on how to confront an active shooter.
7: We definitely need ongoing training. Um, I can't talk about the specifics about what we did. Um, I can say that it involved uh, scenarios in our own school building here um, which was a very insightful because things happen quickly.
10: While this school supports arming teachers, the Ohio Education Association, which represents 120,000 teachers, does not. Scott DeMoro is the president. You introduce more guns into schools, especially among people who are minimally trained, uh, who don't have this as their primary responsibility. You increase the odds uh, of accidental shootings. Demorrow says the bill that allows armed teachers in Ohio does not require enough training. You know, requiring 24 hours of training uh, really is completely inadequate. It's out of line with what other states do. He says what schools should focus on is creating a nurturing environment. Making sure that every student is nurtured, every student feels safe from bullying, every student feels like they are welcome uh, and that their uh, learning environment is uplifted. As for Joshua Lynn, he says so far parents and students like the idea this school is protected by armed staff. Families
7: like it because it's the best way to protect students in a
6: school is to have armed personnel at the school.
10: Kevin Landers, 10TV News.
6: About six percent of active shooter incidents at K-12 schools since 1970 have taken place in Ohio. Schools are required to hold an active shooter drill each year. Part of the training schools undergo includes teaching lockdowns, while others teach how to respond to an event, including the widely taught run, height, fight philosophy. Swatting is another major issue, and now, thanks to a new law, it makes it a felony. Lawmakers passed it at the very end of the lame duck session last December. You may remember this. Swatting is that prank call that impedes valuable police resources. We saw fake 911 calls do just that at several districts. The minimum sentence is six months, but offenders can be sentenced to up to 18 months in prison. Those convicted can also be held liable for reimbursement of law enforcement resources used as a result of that false threat. It could be the next amendment on which you vote. So come this morning, why a group of Ohioans wants to change how the voting districts are drawn in a battle that's been years in the making. And why the president is calling this month's election a win. We analyze the votes and look at the Democrats' path to 2024 victory in
3: Ohio. The money that the Sacklers were going to put into the states and to compensate people who had lost loved ones is still sitting in the Sacklers' pockets. Uh, That's not right. The
6: Ohio Attorney General weighing in on a major opioid ruling from the Supreme Court.
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome
6: back. Shortly after Ohio turned down Issue 1, a group started taking steps to change how the state draws its voting district maps. Specifically, they want to strip politicians of their powers to draw them. The group wants a 15-member group of people, all political parties to make the decisions. The group is hoping to have the amendment proposal on the November 2024 ballot, when Ohio will also vote for president and U.S. Senate. Now, you will remember the battle over redistricting has been contentious after several heated debates in 2021 and in 2020. A judge rules that the maps created by lawmakers unfairly favored Republicans. We asked Governor DeWine about redistricting at the end of last year before the Supreme Court told the state Supreme Court to reassess the case.
3: This was a new, uh, relatively new, two constitutional amendments Uh, Democrats, Republicans came together to try to come up with a system that would make redistricting reapportionment work better. It didn't. Uh, It just did not work. We ended up in court. Uh, Unfortunately, we ended up with a Supreme Court series of decisions uh, that to some extent flew in the face of what the objective was. The objective, one of the main objectives was to have more compact districts, uh, and at the same time, have more competitive districts. Everyone, I think, believes that we should have more competitive districts rather than fewer competitive districts. Yet, if you look at the Supreme Court decision, it compelled us uh, in, in, in some cases to have fewer, not more, competitive districts. No one envisioned that, but that's where we are today. And that's a problem. It's a problem that how are you going to fix Look, I think the only thing, the only way we're really going to be able to permanently fix this is to go back, try to put a coalition of Democrats and Republicans together and come up with a new constitutional amendment. I don't know any other way of doing it.
6: One issue that's going to be on this November's ballot, legalizing marijuana. Ohioans will vote whether to make recreational marijuana legal in the state after supporters were able to secure enough signatures to put the measure on the November ballot. If passed, adults 21 and over would be allowed to buy and possess up to 2.5 ounces of marijuana and will be able to grow it at home. A 10% tax would support administrative costs, addiction treatment, municipalities with dispensaries, and social equity and jobs programs. Opponents of the measure say legalizing marijuana would be a public health risk. Advocates disagree.
3: You know, it is a public health risk.
0: It's to have a vibrant, illicit market free from any regulation where people selling marijuana products don't have to test them.
6: Now, if voters pass the measure, Ohio will be the 24th state to legalize cannabis for adult use. A petition like the one on redistricting and marijuana will be easier to pass now that issue one is dead. Voters turned down the question, which would have required those citizens leading the redistricting charge to have at least 5 percent of voters from the last gubernatorial election in all 88 Ohio counties. It would have also eliminated the 10-day period to get more signatures the Secretary of State's office. Deemed faulty of course that didn't happen in that sweeping no vote earlier this month Also winning from the issue one failure the biden campaign this week Biden's campaign manager sent an email taking partial credit for the results from this month's election Joe biden's team says the overwhelming win against issue one is proof that his team is being Underestimated well this morning clay gordon continues our issue one coverage with what the election means for democrats in 2024
9: President Joe Biden's campaign team is looking toward issue one results as a success story for the 2024 presidential election. In a memo sent to the president's allies, Biden's campaign manager took partial credit for the denial of the issue, one that was partly invested in by the Democratic National Committee. In that memo, first reported by Politico. Julie Chavez Rodriguez said the country is seeing more evidence that the president and vice president's message is the right one for 2024. And that, quote, our campaign is partnering with a stronger than ever national party that is already investing up and down the ballot and organizing in communities year round, quote. The Biden campaign has had a successful year for elections, including several key votes that show there is some momentum for the party. The president continues to focus on the positives as the investigation into his son, Hunter Biden, continues. Even still, Democrats are looking towards this win as a sign for November and next year. For Democrats, it's a sign of life. Mm -hmm. They have taken an awful lot of losses in Ohio, election after election. And I think one of the big winners from issue one, besides the Reproductive Rights Amendment in November, is Senator Brown, just because it shows there's still a viable way to win in Ohio and do the thing that the Republicans don't want (laughs) to have happen. And and really, the last time Ohio did that for a Democrat was Sherrod Brown himself the last Mm -hmm. time he was on the ballot. One of those signs of life is Delaware County, a typical Republican stronghold. Delaware County voted against issue one by 15 points. Last year, J.D. Vance won by just over six points. And former President Donald Trump carried Delaware County by almost seven points in 2020. Democrats are looking toward counties like Delaware County as a path to 2024. Just take a look at the 2020 presidential election map and the issue one results. Many more suburban areas voting against the Republican issue. That's around Cleveland, Columbus, Dayton and Cincinnati. It's those suburban areas where campaigns hope to win, where Republicans have been pitching their plans in Iowa.
2: We should want to win the majority of Americans. We have the solutions. We know how to lift up everybody. We just have to communicate it the right way. This is not rocket science. This is common
8: sense.
5: That's why I'm campaigning, because I believe that my optimistic, positive message is being rooted in Iowa, and that, frankly, our poll numbers continue to go up. That's great news. We're
9: also going to help middle class families and jobs by utilizing all of our domestic energy resources and being energy independent in this country.
3: The fact is that we have a country that's in serious trouble. We have a-
9: A recent Suffolk USA Today poll conducted before Trump's most recent indictment in Georgia shows him winning against Biden. Out of 500 people, 38 percent said if the election was held now, they would vote for President Biden. Forty four percent say they're supporting Trump. That same poll asked voters about how good of a job the president is doing now. Ten percent strongly approve. Thirty one percent approve 12 percent disapprove and 42 percent strongly disapprove of the job president biden is doing those numbers align with who voters are supporting so lots to take in and a long election season ahead the 2024 election is still 443 days away but first the campaigns are looking to ohioans come november clay gordon 10 tv news
6: Clay leaves us with a countdown. Thank you so much. I had this morning, the increase in overdoses, why it's not just opioids that are of concern. Also, the debate over guns.
10: We believe that we need to have some common sense gun laws, uh, and, and we can also support the Second Amendment uh, and make our community safe.
6: The battle between the city and the state over how to tackle the violence. Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus on, especially while fighting Stargardt, a blinding retinal disease. But she's
2: not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org.
5: At first glance, Terrence and Shania have nothing in common. Terrence is a musician. He is constantly traveling. He's 32 years old, single with no kids, and started smoking when he was 16. Shania, on the other hand, just turned 45. She owns a coffee shop. She is married with two kids and has never smoked. What makes Terrence and Shania similar is that they both have been diagnosed with small cell lung cancer. And it was caught early. That's right. Small cell lung cancer can affect anyone. The good news is early lung cancer screenings can detect small cell lung cancer before it spreads, when the disease is most treatable. Join Stand Up to Cancer and Jazz Pharmaceuticals to raise awareness of small cell lung cancer and accelerate the pace of research. Ask your healthcare provider about screening options that might be right for you or a loved one. Visit standuptocancer.org/lung to learn more.
2: Cancer
4: screening can save your life. Begin cervical screening at age 25. At 45, colorectal and breast screening. At 50, discuss lung screening with a doctor. Find resources for free and low-cost screening at
2: cancer.org/slash get screened. This is a public service message from the American Cancer Society. The next disaster is coming. The time to get ready is now. Make a plan. Choose meetup locations and keep a contact list. Build a kit with food and water. Don't forget your pets. Keep extra medicine on hand make copies of key documents, and keep them somewhere safe. Stay informed, learn about local hazards, and sign up for alerts. Be ready. Learn more at americares.org slash send us in.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
3: The money that the Sacklers were going to put into the the states and to compensate people who had lost loved ones is still sitting in the Sackler's pockets. Uh, That's not right. And I just hope the Supreme Court moves quickly when they hear this in December.
6: This morning, we're hearing from the Ohio Attorney General after the Supreme Court blocked Purdue Pharma from going forward with bankruptcy proceedings. The Biden administration has called it an unprecedented arrangement that would ultimately offer the Sackler family broad protection from opioid-related civil claims. The court also said it would take up the case and hear arguments this December. Unintentional drug overdose deaths continue to be a problem in our state. The latest numbers from the Ohio Department of Health show increases in the last decade. The number of deaths is up from 1,500 in 2013 or 4,100 in 2022. Another hurdle for the city of Columbus trying to change gun laws in the capital city. A gun lawsuit filed by city leaders is now headed back to a Franklin County courthouse. This week, the district appeals court decided there needs to be new, fresh evidence in that case. The lawsuit was first filed in 2019. The city is suing the state to allow cities to pass regulations. Columbus City Attorney Zach Klein says they are ready to keep fighting to allow cities to pass common-sense gun legislation. He's pushing for things like safe storage, universal background checks, and red flag laws. He told 10TV in an interview this week that the city will be able to present new evidence on why those things are necessary.
10: Our citizens demand it. Uh, we need to be able to do it. Uh, The police and the community support us. Uh, Gun violence is a problem in our our, uh, city, our state, our country. And, you know, I think people are fed up.
6: Attorney General Dave Yost responding via statement this morning, telling us, quote, the court's ruling assures that all Ohioans must abide by the same law, state law, when it comes to firearms. Well, there's no date set just yet on when this will go to court. We will, of course, be monitoring that. We thank you for joining us this morning on Face the State. We wish you a great week.
0: That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 11.30 on 10TV. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS-AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS-FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.